Hello, Andrew. Hi, Paulie. Again, we are apart. I know. So sad. The world's gone fucking mad, as we know. I'm fucking mad. Yeah. It's what it is. It is actually really weird not having you in the same room, though. I'm honestly, I I don't like it as much because I don't think we get get the same vibe. But, you know, we'll do what we've got to do and, you know, keep keep on trucking on and eventually eventually all all things finish so and we'll get back to doing what we love mm, true social distancing i don't even think that expression existed before no. this and now it's a hashtag <laughs> <laughs> everything's a fucking That's hashtag. Not special. what isn't a fucking hashtag these days <laughs> oh it's true it's true so listen we're at, we're, we're at, at episode lucky 13 which is pretty cool um, and we've got a, a, a friend of mine coming on tonight named Ben Carse. Uh He was the drummer in the band I played with, with uh, Alain Kidron. That was I mean, a case of beer. People, you all heard that ding? No, no, hang on. But that, was my, that wasn't my phone. That was my computer. Oh. <laughs> so that's a six pack. There's going to be some sort of bylaw in that. Don't worry, I'll, I'll be recording here. is I'll the case here. Don't worry. Right, I'll tell you what, I'm knocking down to a six pack. No, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, that wipes out the case from last episode that you owed me. I think oh, we're that's even. That's a bad one, yeah. <laughs> you still owe Galley and Stars <laughs> glass houses. That's it, that's it. So listen, like, um, before we get to talking to Ben, uh, he's going to Skype in or we're going to get him to join the conversation in a minute. I like As we like to do sometimes in our introductions, we have a little bit of a uh, teaser. Um, sorry, he's texting me again. Um, a little bit of a, 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 a musical, bit of a brain twist, a bit of something to, something to think about. So I did ask you this week, um, because I've been listening to a lot of vinyl recently especially because i've had so much time on my hands and i'm getting back into listening to albums and just being able to have the time to to relax and do it i wanted to know from you that if you thought there was if you if you was if someone was starting a vinyl collection and you'd go to them and say listen if you're starting a vinyl collection you need to have these two albums or this one album in your collection it's a must have everyone should have it and that's where you should start well, Paul, it's a top three. It's always a top three. Always like, a top three. You asked me to you asked me to pick one, and I couldn't. That's fine. So I'm, I'm going for a top three. Cool. I'm happy with that. That because I had two. So okay, that's cool. Do I get to go first? Yeah, yeah. You go. You go. Okay. So yeah, I thought about this long and hard all week, and played some vinyl that I had in my small collection, and thought back to times in my life when I've been listening to vinyl where it's really affected me and I you know must have that album eventually. Yeah. So uh number three, Teskey Brothers, Harvest. Yeah. Mate, it's a go-to in my house. Yeah, right. It's a go-to. It's usually the first 
vinyl album that I put on for any listening session. Yeah, right. And really, he, I mean, it's a one in a million voice for yeah. a white guy. <laughs> I'm not even being racist. I mean, they did a Twitter thing out of the States when they were playing at New Orleans and they rounded up a whole bunch of people into a room and then had him sing and then, but from behind a curtain, and then they pull back the curtain and film the expressions on everyone's faces going, what the fuck, he's white? Yeah. And he's got long blonde hair? Yeah. And he's from Australia? <laughs> and he's crooning like New Orleans blues. Yeah. Unbelievable. So yeah. much soul. So that's, that's a, I mean, that's a one in a million chance. One in two million chance that he would have that voice. But to hear it on vinyl is incredible. Yeah. It really yeah. is. Uh, number two, and this is going back to my youth, to my beloved aunt who was one of the first people to, um, you know, play me a bit of vinyl. Yeah. And what she played at a very young age was uh, David Bowie Changes. Yeah. I mean, the pinnacle of that, just to hear Life on Mars on vinyl, it's completely different. It's completely different. The piano in that is just... It just takes me to a different place. And number one with a bullet must have, if I can only have one, would have to be Machine Gun. Jimi Hendrix, The Band of Gypsies, Fillmore East, New Year's Eve, 1969 to 1970, live concert, double album. It, it's life-changing. It's the best Jimi Hendrix album it's one of the best in the history of albums. Yeah. Um, you know, and it look, it fought off a lot of good contenders. Uh, Sergeant Peppers, for one. Uh, I, I, I couldn't find room yeah. in the top three for Sergeant Peppers, but it was going to be number one. And, you know, I, I, I tussled with this all week. I really did. I really did. Yeah, so, I actually thought about Sergeant Peppers as well. And when you hear what I chose, and I'll give you a reason of why I didn't put Sergeant Peppers in as well, because it's it's yeah, I mean it it is a good album, but yeah, that's some that's some quality stuff there, brother. Quality stuff. They're my top three picks, people. I would um, rush out and invest right now. Yeah. Actually, I saw recently they did a uh, they did an anniversary edition of that album. Yeah, right. Um, they did a re-release, remastered purple vinyl something like that very tempting three hundred dollars us not tempting enough in these current times but (laughs) that's a good 450 australian at the moment plus shipping plus shipping yeah yeah but uh yeah a a very well-rounded album and and a piece of musical history i mean new year's eve in new york uh 69 to 70 i mean that's (laughs) <laughs> that's what it was all about there brother right there i mean that is right in the age of aquarius as they say um you know free love the the whole job lot yeah uh, and they were doing the uh the new year's eve gig at the fillmore east and i mean the fillmore amazing and 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 he's he's dead three six months after that 1970 you know yeah, that's that's the that's the heavy, when I listen to it because I, I got a copy of that album from I mean you remember what the Pado markets used to be yeah 
Mm-hmm. And I remember, and I had no idea what I was buying at the time. I just started, you know, I was thinking I was 13 or 14, and I kicked myself because I no longer have the, have the record anymore. Um, but I think I paid 20 bucks for it. Where's my dog? He's lying on the floor. Hang on. So, yeah, I think I paid 20 bucks for it at, at the Pato Markets, having no idea what it was. I just saw Jimi Hendrix and went, oh, I'll go and buy that. And it's turned into probably one of my favourite albums of all time, you know. So I'm gonna I'm gonna put that at number three. I'm gonna at number three, three, three yeah. and then I'll let you know. And so for for my other two, this sort of the, the idea for this came about, like I said, this week or the last sort of week and a half because I've had a lot of time off work. I've been listening to a lot of vinyl, and um, these two albums in particular, they're two albums that I've always had either on CD or tape or whatever. Um, but having them on vinyl, um, both of them are reissues. So, you know, they've been remastered, remastered and all that sort of, sort of thing. But they're, they're really unbelievable albums. And I'll show you. I'll show you both of them. So number two was, was this one. Ah, Miles Davis. Davis kind of blue. Now, this album, when I was 17, 18... It was really my first introduction to Miles Davis and Rita Miller put me onto it, our, our music teacher from high school. Um, and, yeah, it's just – it's an album that I always wanted to have on vinyl. Go on, get out, out. So, dogs. Um, and, yeah, I've got it on vinyl and it's it's just a completely different listen, you know. Like it's – it's and I think if, if someone was, hey, listen, I want to start listening to vinyl, go and buy that album. You know, like it's just, it just changes so many ways of listening to music because it's the way it's mixed. It's like they play it live. They don't, it's not like they've done part, 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 parts. They just set up in a room and they played. So there's mistakes on the album, um, but there's a real clarity and and a real warmth to the music, which is great. Um, The other one for me, number one, must have on vinyl. Have to have it. it. Just it's and I, that's I've got that downloaded. I've got it on CD. Um, I saw it in the shop on vinyl. So I have to have that on vinyl. I just have to do it. And I I think I've, I've found even though a lot of the reissue vinyl has been compressed a little bit and has been remastered, it still sounds different to the CDs and it still sounds different to the digital downloads. And it's such a pleasure. Now that just before we wrap this little intro up. I wanted to ask you, because I did this the other day, and I wanted to ask you if you do this, because I used to do it years and years ago, and I've just, the last couple of days, reorganised my office to bring my big stereo in out of the garage into the house so I can wear headphones and listen to vinyl and stuff. Um, do you lie on the floor when you listen to music? I do. Because I forgot <laughs> what, what, that, what that was like, and that's such a... Yeah, I got a I got a clutch album in the off off um, got sent to me in the mail the other day, and I lay on the floor with my headphones on and put it on and just read the lyrics while the whole album was playing, and I can't remember the last time I've done that. And fuck me, that's so much fun, and it's a really good way to listen to music, you know. And I used to do it so often, and it's yeah, it's it's just so I wanted to know if you did the same thing. Yeah, I still lay on the floor um, in my living room. Yeah. Because um, it's the only place to like really stretch out and 
Uh, I have my speakers kind of off my um, fireplace just yeah. behind me here. So it kind of comes out over the top of me. Yeah, nice. Uh, it's kind of like a warm blanket yeah. on a cold night. So one of the things that I like about your turntable too is that it is Bluetooth. So you can sit at a lot lie pretty much wherever you want. And it's, you know, one of the advantages of digital technology and combining mm -hmm. it with the analog stuff is you get a really good sound out of that. I mean, that that's but the speaker's behind you, right? Just over your shoulder. That's it, my little bow speaker. Because I have a small apartment. Anything bigger than that... Yeah, is uh well, it'd be useless in this small environment, you know. Yeah. It's the little but mini Bose has just a great warm sound, especially with the vinyl. Yeah, and yeah. it fills the room because you know, obviously, an apartment I can't have it blaring out, and I don't need it to be blaring out. I just no. need it to envelope me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think the 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 like I've got a little Bose system now that I've put into my um. Uh, lounge room and their base the way they they get their base um is really warm and really like it, it really pays the vinyl a good um pays its juice you know like it's really good like that i like i like the, i like your little speaker i think that that's it's a wonderful little thing you know mm -hmm. but yeah that's that's what they, those three i mean we you know jimmy hendrix and um led zeppelin and miles davis those three for me if someone was saying, listen, what am I going to listen to? What, what, what should I buy? Go and buy them because that, that'll get you started. That'll get you addicted and then you'll be spending Do money. yourself a favour, as Molly would say. Go out and buy it right now. That's it. That's it. All right, bro. So should we get your friend in? Yeah. So let's um, take a quick break. We'll get Ben on the line and um, have a chat. Welcome to a very dear friend of mine, haven't seen for a long, long time, so this is a special day for me, Ben Kase. How are you, brother? Hey, guys. Thanks for having us on. Nah, man. All good. All good. Absolute pleasure. I've been thinking, I've been wanting to talk to you for a while, wanting to still catch up and, you know, because you're a dad now and a lot has changed in your life and since I've last seen you. And, um, yeah, it's been, and I wanted to have you on the show because I know that, You've had a interesting musical journey uh, with me, and and you know uh, other things that you've done in your life. So, man, it's a real pleasure to have you. Thanks again for giving us your time, and you know we really appreciate it. Thanks, Polly. Um, looking forward to talking about some uh, interesting stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, mate. We we normally kick things off with a um, couple of simple questions, a couple of easy ones. Um, what were you listening to today? My own stuff. Yeah, cool. <laughs> and also, there's a, I've been mixing a track in Lismore for a, a, an emerging young rapper called Wawa. Yeah. And uh, he teamed up with one of the guys, one of the soul singers that I work with in Sydney, who was up here doing some weddings, a couple of his own gigs. 
And um, yeah, I teamed up, you know, this this guy had just been like, you know, scribbling stuff down on paper a couple of months ago, suddenly working with, you know, a really, really good producer. Yeah. So, yeah, I can send you guys a track if you want to, you know, add stuff to the session or share that with people. Oh, um, man, anything that we can share, like you can send to me and I can pump out over Instagram too. So. Yeah. yeah, I can send you an excerpt. You can cut it up a bit. 100%. 100%. Um, so, yeah, today I was listening to my own stuff. I've got, um, I've got 14 tracks ready to go. Yeah, cool. I want to talk to you about that in a second. Yeah. So I was glad that you, you is is that isolation creativity or is that just bog standard for Ben Carso? No, that was pre fatherhood creativity. <laughs> um, some of those some of those tracks are actually um, up to ten years old, but it's it's good to come back to them and mix them and feel like I'm um, really happy with where they're at, even if some of them haven't been touched or the sessions haven't been opened. In some cases, for so three or four years so i'm just looking out the window because um there's a lot of palm trees here yeah and the fronds are massive and sometimes when they hit the roof it's pretty it's pretty loud so that's all good we'll know yeah. what it is when something happens fire trucks go past you'll hear them because i'm um, 100 meters from a maruba fire station so oh yeah right <laughs> our yeah. listeners are used to it it's a, it's a bit of background noise it makes it real thankfully <laughs> it's a little bit cooler than it was a couple of months ago yeah, well, where Robbo is, is just up the road from where we used to do those um, Maroubra Junction basement gigs uh, under yeah. the pub there. Yeah. Yeah. Which, is now, which is now a no-name. What is it, sorry? It's a no-name. It's a no-name. Yeah, the glass, oh, yeah. the glass house. Yeah. Yeah, glass house, yeah, no-names. Downstairs. In the basement, yeah, it's no-names. We, we played some mental gigs in there. Oh, crazy times. Yeah, I think no, they were always pretty, um, pretty happening afternoons. I reckon that was a fun room, man. It was a yeah. Fun... I think it must have been because it was a good PA. Generally, if it's a, you know, there's only really one thing that makes a room good. <laughs> but I think That's... that the, guy, the guys from the a lot of Maroubra Beach Boys that ran that night were very cool as well. It made they that were, uh, pretty, yeah, you pretty easy to um, just rock up and play, you know. Yeah, and everyone was on their best behaviour, at least at that time of day. Yeah. Did you ever play with a guy around these bits of the ones with Maroubra, uh, Sean Hockley? Now, no. he, he used to, um, if you knew his band, he used to get in like a lizard suit <laughs> and play like thrash metal. But right. he used to play, like I know, like around like the glass house and stuff like that around the generations. But yeah, you would know Sean because it was like a thrash metal band and he was in a lizard suit. Nice. Not, not really else. <laughs> Maybe he was a dude pulling all the strings and putting on all the gigs. Yeah, probably. Well, he he was, as far as I know. He was doing a lot so of gigs. Like, I mean, yeah, dude in a lizard suit, like whatever he says. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Hey Benny, do you do you remember the first gig that you went to that you paid for yourself? Didn't go with your parents, went with your mates. Yeah. Um, did and you know, paid for the ticket yourself, went night out with the boys, whatever. Um, but wasn't like, you know, it was something that was independent from your folks and, and that sort of stuff. Yeah, I think it's um I mean, that was intertwined with some of the stuff we were just um, chatting about this week when we connected a few times. But uh, I'm pretty sure it was the 
There were two gigs, actually. The first one was um, the Emergency on Planet Earth gig at the Metro for Jamiroquai. Yeah. And he brought all the horns, all the background vocals. I think it must have been at least a 12, 13, maybe even 14-piece band. Um, and that's the first time I've seen a band of that caliber just at full strap by then because I probably would have done Europe and Asia and, you know, America. And by the time they got here, they were just – they were probably sounding as as good as any part of the tour maybe because, you know, it was, I think, their first major tour as well. Um, they were that's the Metro gig on Georgia. Yeah, so the Metro – and there was just this one point um, – where everyone um, just lit up at the same time. It was like, <laughs> and I was there at the Metro back in the day where that stuff was still like no one had bat an eyelid really. Nah. And as uh, I felt, you know, it was, it was a it was a special moment because you know having just listened to the album and then hearing it, I think they they basically played it almost um, in order of the album. It was just yeah. like because it's such a great album. Yeah. So yeah, that was. That was the first ticket I bought for myself and went where I could when I was of age. And then the Black Eyed Peas, actually, like I think it was maybe their first major Sydney show before anyone knew, you know, who the Black Eyed Peas were. Before they sold out. Stadium Australia, 10 times. Um, but they were that, did, when they first came out, was that, did they have Fergie with them? No, man, it was just a live band. It was literally just like a band of, you know, because, I, I mean, from what I understand, you know, Will I Am would have still been writing in the in the community, you know, as a composer. He was always a respected producer, yeah. composer. So he would have had the best musicians at his disposal, whoever he was working with, wherever he was based, you know, in the States. And those guys would have made the touring band and they were all just absolute motherfuckers. Because I, I remember Mule telling me, Around that time, oh, you you got to listen to the Black Eyed Peas and yeah, the, yeah. I think we were both because Che was playing it to us. Yeah, but then I think like I didn't didn't bother because I was you know obsessed with heavy guitars and stuff. Mm. Um, and then I heard them like twelve months later when they were with Fergie and Super Poppy, and I was like, fuck, what are you guys talking about? Yeah, that was a big shift. <laughs> yeah, it was massive. But I, I did I, I listened to a podcast with Will I Am uh, maybe six months ago. Yeah, and he said it was deliberate. He said, "Look, listen, oh, it's just a business." Yeah, he owns. He owns, he said, "I now have the studio I always wanted, and I can do whatever the fuck I want." You yeah. see, I'm like, yeah, I had to do the pop stuff to get the money, but you do what you do to get where you want to get. You know? mm-hmm. uh, well, I, I I got to see them. I got uh, I got comp tickets actually by a mate of mine for a um, corporate box. Out at uh, Ace Arena or whatever it's called. Kudos. Kudos, thank you. Uh, and it was more, to be honest, it was more about going corporate box and <laughs> a few drinks and food and hanging out and stuff like that. But there was a moment in that gig which really, really blew my mind was Will I Am kind of came up in the middle of, you know, the mosh pit kind of thing and he did a DJ set. And he was mixing Nirvana, smells like Teen Spirit, over Prince. Yeah, and nice. It fucking worked. It was unbelievable. And then he, like, everything that he was, you know, he threw some Bowie in there and um, some Zeppelin. And it was just, it was, it was phenomenal. It was phenomenal. So that, that was the best part of the show. The rest was 
yeah, it was poppy and stuff like that. And, you know, we were hanging with these corporate bigwigs and... and but it's just like it's like when we were, when we were talking to Alan a couple of weeks ago. Like even the, the 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 shittiest, most annoying pop, you might have to look for it. But there's always talent in there, you know. Like yeah. if you're not a fan of them, there's always something in there that's given that that person the kick to get that get that song, you know, and get the get the okay from the record company. Yeah, you're the person we're going to push because the talent's still there, you know. But on the on on that note, right? So on cheesy pop note. We ask this of all our guests, Benny. So, I want yeah, to know. I've got plenty of ammunition if you want cheesy pop confessions. Well, I want to know what your what your secret passion is, mate. I want to know what you listen to. Well, what's your guilty pleasure? Yeah, what's your guilty pleasure? Going right back, I guess, is definitely Johnny Farnham. Yeah. Mum's um, actually a really good singer. It's a good opportunity to tell a story because um, mum had singing lessons before John Farnham in Melbourne for a while. Right. And you used to go in one door and leave through another door. So there was privacy for all the students. Yeah. And she thought it was a girl for a long, long time because his falsetto was so good that yeah. I guess she must have come in at that point of his lesson at the end. And, um, you know, she later found out it was Johnny Farnham yeah, um, crazy. in front of her in the in the vocal studio. So, um I just think that era, like I love that era of Australian musicians as well, like, you know, the writing that people like Ian Moss were doing, um, still doing. Um, I, yeah, I used to get off on that stuff as a young drummer a lot because um, the groove would be really strong in those tracks. It'd be big. Now, you know, that's when they started using big heavy synth lines, doubling them with the bass. Um, so yeah. I'm the opposite with that that era because – the bass was so synthed out. Like it was very synthed out in that era, in that particular little nugget of time. Yeah, and like I, for me, it's like it. It's, I, I always skip the eighties, you know, like because it's it's yeah. for a bass player. There's there's just so many fucking keyboards in there. It's like, dude, come on. Stop. Yeah, I'm a total snob. Hey, I've come to terms with my snobbiness. All right, I, I have no shame. I know that I'm a snob and I'm judgmental, but I'm getting better. Come on, come no, on. You got, you got to know what you like. That's it. I'm not, that's the other thing. I'm too old to listen to shit that I don't like. I don't have the time anymore. There's too much good stuff to listen to. You yeah. Know? Um. So was the guilty pleasures just to do with music, or are we just going completely like? No, no, just your music, just your musical. Just because the music it's, funny side. Say, um, it's funny you say John Farnham because. Leroy, my son, he's, you know, collecting vinyl and stuff and it was his birthday a couple of weeks ago and my mum went and dug out a few old vinyls um, to give him out of her, you know, box storage boxes and whatnot and uh, Whispering Jack was in there. So he's got that on vinyl. Oh, so that's mint. That's like full collector's it edition. Buddhas. It used to be Buddhas, you know, so. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> but, um. I would have loved he would it. never admit to that. It was mums. It was always mums. No, we just used no. to listen to it together as our thing that we bonded. I'll tell you what's a good guilty pleasure as well as um, since I've been doing a lot of covers, you know, I've been doing a lot of weddings in the last couple of years and actually, you know, being a drummer that knows how to play a big volume of tracks, you know, so that you can play with lots of different singers. And there's a lot of tracks in there that, you know, you might have heard on an R&B sample that you don't realise are from like a classic, you know, Isley Brothers track yeah. or a Michael McDonald track, you know, where a lot of the West Coast G-Funk stuff took a lot of 
you know, classic grooves that were around like 10, 15 years before that. And yeah. so I've got this list of, you know, all the hip hop samples um, that I can find, you know, like one of them that was so out there the other day was like, I think it was Michael Jackson's Lady in My Life yeah. um, was the sample used on LL Cool J's track. Um, like, oh, as baby something, I, I, I can send you the details of it. But, you know, it was just... Yeah. It was like, you know, you look up, where's this sample from? And it's only a boom, like, you know, that's a Michael Jackson sample. And it's, yeah. I, I love the investigation of really knowing, you know, like, like say a lot of people don't know, you know, the most famous one is The Horses by um, Ricky Lee Jones, you know, yeah. is the writer of that. And a lot of people probably think it's Daryl Braithwaite or um, something like that. So, I mean, his version's sick. On, on the sample side, there's the, I mean, there's the, the, the most famous drum beat of all, which is Led Zeppelin. You know, doo -doo, doo, which is the Beastie Boys sampled, right? Yeah. I had Led Zeppelin on the other day, and Leroy was like, oh, I thought that was a Beastie Boys track. It's like, no, 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 bro. That's, that's, oh, the, so he heard the Beastie Boys one first. Boys, but not the Led Zeppelin, you know, not the original. And then he heard the original. He heard the original. He's like, oh, I didn't yeah. know that was from that, you know? Yeah. But yeah. that has been sampled all over the place all over yeah, the those, place. i think those kind of connections are important you know to know the classics to to know you know which tracks for whatever reasons just became those really famous samples yeah um so yeah i went on a bit of a nerd out i get that was a guilty pleasure i just spent ages looking up you know every track that i had like an, an r&b playlist of 40 tracks or something and almost every second track or so was you know, just a sample from a famous track that you never heard of. Yeah. And discovered a whole lot of amazing artists along the way, like Joe Sample. Always, I always heard his name, always knew he was a keyboard player, but um, his sample is the track of Tupac's Dear Mama. Yeah. yeah. It's the whole thing. Yeah, right. Just so, yeah. you know, they're either just usually sped up or slowed down a tad. Yeah. Um, but it's great listening to the original. It's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and then how it would have evolved of them being in the studio and cutting it up and <laughs> all the things that would have been going on. So, oh, yeah. No. Also, yeah, I've had, a, I had a sample recently which I was surprised on was, um, oh, I can't think of the Prodigy track that it is, but the sample they took was the bass line from I Am One of Smashing Pumpkins. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, that's what you don't like. You you do think a lot when you think of hip hop samples of of them sampling older tunes, but not things that are current. Like I guess you know, like Smashing Pumpkins are not current. They've shown my age; they are thirty years but, ago. But it wasn't. It was current at the time. They sampled the baseline yeah. of I Am One at the same time that they were releasing their own album, which was only oh, four years after that came out. You know. Um, well, and they still, I mean, it's interesting because they still wouldn't have had the technology until like the mid to late 80s at earliest, like before then looping stuff was still, you know, you'd still cut, cut it up by hand. Yeah. Well, that, that's um, Q-Tip does a lot of that. When you watch when you watch the documentary on Tribe Called Quest and the way he put his samples together was doing that, was picking a, a snare hit and cutting it with tape and yeah. putting it on. And again, there's the same one again and, you know, cutting each yeah, section. Right. Yeah. That's amazing. He's ridiculous like that. Like when you listen to the, the, his beats and how the how smooth they sound and how oh, well yeah. they go together. Yeah. 
redonkulous, mate. It's absolutely because one yeah. of one of the things I wanted to get you on, I wanted to blow a little bit of smoke up your ass because um, you know we've had Ricky and T on, and we've had Alan on, and oh, hopefully, nice. Hopefully, uh, we're getting we're getting we're getting Justin on in a, in a month or so as well. Yeah, really good. So we'll have the full dopamine effect. Nice, Doctor Smooth crew. Um, nice. I've been listening when I, when I turned forty. I got Mule to and and my brother to to send me all the stuff that we'd done together, all the CDs, so I could store it all on my computer and have it all together. Man, I love listening to you drum. Thanks, bros. And it was such a like I'm playing with T was one thing because T and I had 15 years off and on playing together. And so we were really hooked in on, on one zone. But He's just a monster like that. Yeah. But when you and I played together, man, the one and the two were always so strong. Yeah. So on point that, yeah, I really like, I enjoyed it. I don't think I ever got a chance to tell you, man, how much I enjoyed playing with you as a drummer and a bass player and as a rhythm section, you know, like it was, Thanks, bro. That's really nice. Yeah, yeah. We came from different angles, but we seemed to find a really nice groove. And the the proof's in the pudding. When I go back to listen to that stuff, man, and you'll yeah. Well, I'd love to get it off you, man. I've finally just got into a space where I've got my gear set up again. I had, you know, when I moved up from Sydney, I had a lot of my stuff in boxes, and I don't think I ever actually had copies of that stuff. So, man, I'd love to get that stuff off you. Thumb drive for you. Send me your address, mate. I'll post it, it up to you. This is the thummy, bro. That's it, mate. It's all good. <laughs> I actually, it's, it's so Do you guys bright. need a moment? <laughs> no, I think we just had it. No, that's so it. We, we had our moment. With, that's, that's all the, good. That's bro. the rhythm section. We, yeah, that's not. We, we don't want to indulge ourselves too much now. Uh, I, don't, I don't, don't want to be too Come much. back down to earth. But, you know. The, I was just sitting here having a little wank under the table. That was all. I just <laughs> want to crank you guys out. <laughs> No, I'm done. The thing, the, the thing that, you know, I, I have been um, thinking about, though, is, you know, if, if um, you know, you play enough and you get, you know, comfortable enough on your instrument to a point where, you know, ideally a little bit in the earlier stage of your life, if you can find that time to commit, really only takes two or three years of solid practice to an instrument or, or lots of gigs or something, you know, in your teens or early 20s or something like that so that your playing is actually just, you know, at a certain point of strength. Yeah. And um, if you keep listening to music and you keep loving music and doing it the way that, you know, you give yourself opportunity to actually, you know, be yourself um, outside of what you're doing, you know, if you're making money from music, that's one thing. But always remembering that it's about having fun. Yeah. and enjoying it and um that's great that you got all that old stuff because it was definitely you know we were definitely having a fun time with what we were playing oh, and that's, that's what it's all about and yeah there were also groups that sort of went through changes where people came in and out and there was not too much fuss no. if there was any fuss there was no major blow-ups so it was kind of a nice never personal it was always nice there's quite cool. a lot of mish, mishing and mashing of groups there for a while and then i remember also with Che DJing. Robbo Che is this um, DJ that used to, I mean, he was actually just an absolute, like he's someone that if he'd gone, I just want to win the Scratching World Championships. He was um, this friend of ours that used to hang out with us. and um, He was a, a Ramwick North boy as well, Che. He was in, he was in um, Ricky's year. So yeah. Probably, yeah. 
Because Robbo was at, Robbo was one year above me at Ramwick North, and I think oh yeah right, so you're close with all those guys. Che and Ricky were probably two, maybe three years below me. So yeah, I kind of remember Ricky because him and Paul had a slight connection, but I mean, any of the others, they were just fuck, mate. I was I was on the way out. They were on the way in. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. I didn't give a fuck. No, nah. yeah, you're gone. Those guys, they're definitely um. Yeah, they're they're a big component of that time as well. I remember, you know, just hearing people sing. You know, you guys already had great harmonies going on, and they were also in their own little sort of harmony pocket. Yeah, but um, I think the, I think the advantage that we had, and I've spoken about this before, is that we had the ability, and I've, I've struggled to to find other people that to do this with, is that we jammed a lot and we improvised on the spot a lot, and that was our that was our core with all that group, all the groups of people, and all the different. Um, bands and 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 things that the, the the jamming was the key is that we could all get into a room and and have a play and it wouldn't matter what group you were from or whatever we'd just find something you know well, we had that room in Tamarama we were very lucky yeah and Lance place was, was that was that was where it was happening <laughs> there were a couple of interesting characters that came in and out some people lived there for a little while yeah well he said it's still running as a studio that place so well it should be it's just you know custom built. Yeah, Dude, so tell tell me a little bit about um, Honey and Stone, and and how that came about for you. That's, I mean, I guess the the, the idea of the project is for people like I worked with a, one young guy in particular who can sing all of the covers repertoire, and I've never really done much cover stuff at all. But I, you know, I mean, since we hung out, I did the Bachelor of Music up here at Southern Cross. Mm-hmm and did that in three years, and that was a performance course. So since, I mean, you know, it's always been, you know, my comfort zone has been live music. So when I came back to having an agency that was about harnessing, you know, like just saying to people, like, you know, think of it like this. You could do one wedding and one private gig a week in that in that line of work, and that's, you know, that's like six to eight hours worth of actual gigging time. Yeah. Maybe ten, plus travel and a bit of setup, but. You know, you're making as much as you would be if you were, you know, working in a cafe 30 hours a week. So just kind of meeting young young musos and going to them, look, you know, the opportunity for you to actually just cash in on this and make your life better and not be too proud about the, you know, like there's heaps of examples. You know, look at Alun, for example, like he's a fucking amazing writer. He's got massive kudos as an original artist and, you know, has achieved things commercially, but he also is, you know, happy to do weddings when they come up and... Yeah. Um, well, you know, listen, yeah. he, he played he played my boss's son's bar mitzvah. Yeah, you know? Course, so, yeah. you know, and I know that he does a lot of work in in the Jewish community and things at the synagogue. Yeah, and, and it's not for, it's, well, so. it's not for everyone, but for me, I was like, you know, I actually um, saw a bit of a gap in the market, and it was basically um, the way we do our thing when we're doing private gigs, and and uh, we don't do that much corporate stuff. We mainly do a lot of weddings, but you know, we try and find. We're actually working with a couple of venues up here around Byron that are, you know, it's more about less weddings in a slightly higher budget range, but that's not, you know, that's just representative of presenting singers that I think are the absolute best singers that you can find, you know, that are doing that work. And so I guess going back to the guilty pleasures thing, I've always loved people that, you know, the way the way I look at it, which, you know, I can say because I'm not a singer myself, but the whole project is really around the presenting that very top 5% of singers, you know, there's people that can sing 
and they can hold a yeah. tune and they sound great. But then there's that little bracket like, you know, like an Otis Redding or an Alan or this guy Hosway that I'm working with who's the lead singer for, for Honey and Stone. And basically, um, you know, there's a real beauty in honouring all of those old tunes that you play. Yeah. Um, learning how to play those songs in a really clean and respectful manner, like actually learning if someone wants to do the original version, you know, you can actually play that form. Um, and I guess it's like, you know, it's, it's at some point every musician's got to go, am I going to do a stint where I just get all my cover stuff down? Yeah. You know, some people never do, they never need to. They might be, you know, just sticking to one style the whole time. But um, Dude, I don't play any covers. Zero. No, you're actually like almost like a zero covers. Yeah, hundred percent. And there's and there's re and there's a, a a reason behind it. In yeah, that I don't like to know the mechanics when I'm listening to it. Yeah, you're not that sort of like you got a totally different approach to what you're yeah, doing. It's, it's all my, that's just. I mean, that's just me, and I don't begrudge anyone. Do what you want to do. If that's what I reckon, you know. But for me, it's like. When I, I, I love to be a music fan as well as a musician. And if I yeah. know the mechanics, then I struggle to be the music fan. Yeah. So I would rather write something that's reflective of what I'm listening to as opposed to trying to interpret what someone else has done. Yeah. Because I said, I, I, I go back to Tony Hawk, right? A skateboarder. His thing is always when you've seen someone do the trick, you know it can be done. Because that you know it can be done, even if yeah. it's really difficult, you, you know it can be done. Yeah, if you haven't seen someone do it, and you're trying to work it out yourself, then it might not work all the time. But every now and again, you're going to hit something that someone else hasn't been able to do. So yeah. that's that's my that's my theory behind it. You know, like so that's and I have limited time what I can do. So listen, we had we had on um, one of the re one of the reasons I wanted to have you on tonight was we um, we sort of bumped you back a couple of weeks because we had a special. Um, episode a couple of weeks ago where we were specifically talking about the shutdown, the C19, um, how that's affected the art industry. We had Andrew's very good friends, Nick and, and Gally. Um, Gally's a, a, a muso based out of Melbourne, right, Robbo? Uh, no, no, no. He's, uh, he's around Dorway now, Ben. He's uh, relocated from Melbourne and they're up on um, Kingscliff. All right, so Kingscliff, right. Oh, yeah, they're up just on the coast near us. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So uh, the whole thing yeah, was to get up there. And he's, he, he's a world-renowned um, musician in his own right for his right. own music, but he's a base of covers gigs. I mean, that has taken him all over the world from sure. French Alps to um, the Canary Islands, all through Ireland, yeah. uh, and that has paid for him being able to uh, you know put the money back into his own music and his own albums to oh, release totally. that. Uh, he is at a stage in his career now where the covers are just for the bread and butter to feed the two kids and the wife. And um, but I mean, he gets he goes all over Australia, different festivals, uh, South America, Brazil, uh, playing festivals and stuff like that. And he's he's done very well in his own right for you know his small independent. Uh, you know, being a musician, but he's he's based on covers and he's, uh, well, he's, you know, he's galley for his own music. And when he does his covers, he calls it galleoke. And um, because, uh, you know, he's a, real, he's a real craftsman when it comes to covers. I mean, he has an, un an unimaginable repertoire of, 
of lists of different musicians he can do from, you know, Otis Redding to Pink. You well, know, there's, there's not, much, not much he can't do, but I remember a good story, and we'll you know, just touch you on what you were just saying. Um, you know, we've seen other cut in Maribel where we lived in the ski resort, there was like, you know, every night's a cover band in a different pub. You know, it just depends what cover band you want to see. And he used to get upset going to see the other cover bands, you know, having a beer with me or whatever, and seeing these guys who were just, you know, lead singers who were still reading off the lyrics, you know, out of the, um, what do you call it, your little stand with your notebook. The old, the old plastic folder. The old plastic, oh, plastic folder. And to the, the point, iPads. Exactly. <laughs> Before iPads, yeah. Before and, iPad, the old Plasto on that shitty stand, you know, that one that opens up. It never yeah. used to work that well. But I remember sitting in a bar with Gally and saying, you know, the band's really good, but this fucking lead singer's driving me crazy because he's, he's singing every song out of a book. He said, you know what? As a business of mine, learn your craft. Be proud of your craft yeah. and, you know, be proud that you're standing on the shoulders of giants to make a bit of money. But be yeah. proud of it and do it right. The next song, someone came and requested a song for some girl's birthday and he serenaded her over in the corner with the microphone the whole thing. With his fucking book in his hand. Oh, oh that's fucked up. The song. <laughs> yeah. And he looked at me and went, you see what I'm talking about, bro? I'm like, yeah. I, Because I, I was sitting there going, oh, yeah, Gally's just fucking having a rant. But yeah. I understood yeah. it in that moment. This yeah. guy looked like an absolute fucking twat. You know why? Because he was a twat. <laughs> <laughs> but learn your craft. Learn your Be proud craft. of your craft. Yeah. And so, yeah, and look, it's not for everyone. It's but a thing that you know, I definitely realised for me as a player, there was a point at which I, 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 I guess there was opportunities being offered, and it was like you know, as someone that wanted to actually be a full time player, um, and when I got into that space, you know, the two three years following, particularly after I got out of uni, and then I decided to you know take music in the direction of like more community based outcomes. Um, yeah, prior to that, um, the biggest thing that came out of it is like talking to young musos now. If they say they want heaps of gigs or this, that, or the other, it's just like, dude, just do the work. Yeah, like everything's about doing the work, mate. Just, just what, put in that like two or two or three years of doing at least, you know, at least thirty hours of practice a week, something like that. That's not that's not a lot. That's like, you know, not much more than a couple of hours. Well, yeah, I'm saying when it comes to uh, learning a musical instrument, if you dedicate a thousand hours to it, you will be good at it. Yeah. Yeah, and the quicker you do it, the quicker you go up, and then the quicker you sort of plateau. But that's all part of the process. Sure, but a thousand hours is uh, is what I hear is uh, what you need to be, you know, a confident guitarist, for example. Dedicate a yeah. thousand hours to it. Yeah. So. Yeah. It my fingers hurt after 20 minutes. I couldn't do it. <laughs> yeah, that's why I play keys. Suck it up, mate, and just keep going. <laughs> so, Benny, how was is, how is the, um, the you know, the, the whatever, whatever we're calling it, the shutdown affected your business? And the, um, Yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah, a big hit or? We're, we're still sort of waiting and seeing, I guess. But, I mean, in, in our case, thankfully, a lot of the people that we're booked in to do gigs with or weddings or private events at the moment. Most people have just changed the date. Yeah. Um, so I feel quite lucky. I, I think um, I'm, I'm enjoying the positive side of, you know, when you when you run a booking agency, it can be a real head case sometimes when you're dealing with 
you know, just even simple logistics like getting all the musicians to the gig on time or <laughs> making sure no one's late for the ceremony and all these kind of things. Are they playing the right song, what they're playing it off and blah, blah. It's like yeah. that's been my life for the last few years. But, you know, feeling really proud of the fact we're doing, you know, when the music starts, it's really good quality stuff every time. There's no doubt about that. Very few mistakes along the way, but um, I've actually been enjoying like a moment of quietness in the industry where, um, you know, the big question I think in terms of a, um, a, a community-based outcome is, you know, how many, you know, the question is this, how many people who, even if they are able to postpone their event, marriage, whatever, engagement, um, you know, there'll be a lot less budget available to a lot of people in, in the next six to nine, 12, 18 months, whatever. So I think that, you know, who I really feel for is people who are really, you know, just relying on their gigs. Yeah. Because I think that the scale of things will come down a lot and that's what will be unfortunate. You know, people who are going to spend X amount on now spend this much on their budget and people who wanted a live band or now just, you know, play stuff off Spotify. Yeah. Um, I was thinking today though that the, the when when the, the you know the social distancing stuff sort of comes to a bit of a close, because the Australian dollar is so shit compared to the US at the moment, there will be a lot of advantages and and opportunities for local musicians to fill the void of because it'll be too expensive for a lot of the, a lot of the bands to come over from the states, and it'll cost way too much money. You know, with the with the way the dollar is at the moment, and there will be a lot of opportunities, and you know, hopefully people are going to be well placed to, or still in, still able to to you know take those opportunities up. Because yeah, will- I think you're right. I mean, in terms of like that little micro touring kind of industry, I think once venues open up again, that I think that'll go bananas. Really, yeah. people will be so keen to go out. Man, people are what going to want to get out, you know. So yeah, I think it'll be good for a surge of creativity and fresh music and. Um, I couldn't agree more, Benny. Yeah, um, I agree more. I'm so excited to hear the end of this because we are going to a fucking wave of emotional creativity from so many artists from all over the world that it's going to be fucking scary to be alive. Yeah. I can't wait. I know, did you guys catch the um, Lady Gaga did that thing last night? No, I read about that. I didn't didn't see it. No. Yeah, I, and now, Elton John, I, I thought Elton John. He was he was singing so hard. Like I actually thought it was an impersonator at first. Like <laughs> I just heard the exit on the radio. Yeah. And they'd set up a grand piano in his backyard or something like that. And he was man, he was just you know in a good way. He was fucking thumping it out. Like he wasn't just kind of going. I'm still standing. He was just like he was fucking. He was standing like a motherfucker. He was screaming and. Shout out to Mike. I had front row seats three, four months ago. At Kudos, a side, side of stage, row A, looking the, right at him. He was about 20 metres from him. Like, I mean, he has back to it, so we could actually see him playing the piano, but it was one of the greatest things I've ever seen in my entire life. Yeah, that's life. good to hear. It was just absolutely phenomenal. And we saw everything. I mean, he was, I think it was, it was about two weeks before he cancelled his shows in New Zealand because he uh, had pneumonia, but he was hocking loogies into a bucket behind the uh, the piano, which we could see. No one else could see, but, like, from where we were sitting, we could see that. And he was, like, you know, just blasting our song. 
turning around, hocking a big loogie, and then standing up and doing big 360 to the crowd, thanking everybody, and then sitting back down, coattails out, and then dun, 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 dun. <laughs> fucking unbelievable. Unbelievable. Well, in terms of guys that are that old or, you know, guys or girls that are that old, he's, um, he's one of the, the, the great stayers, isn't he? Like, yeah. you know, you could still, you know, you can still bank a world tour on him. He's, it's a, it's a great achievement to have lived a life like that and still be playing. Most people have done that sort of stuff by the time there's 55 or 60. Yeah. He's like 70 something now, isn't he? Yeah. Something like that. Easy, yeah. Still yeah. going hard. I mean, what a fucking legend. Pumping out the gigs. <laughs> so, Benny, I need to know. I need yeah. to know, do you have, so that, you know, I, I sort of gave you a rough idea of what the crux of our podcast is. Um, and Rob and I have spoken to our ad nauseum about what the biggest influences on us were, um, you know, early teenage years. Oh, think, yeah. Do you have one or two artists that, or albums in particular, that really, you know, got you drumming or, inspired you in, in yeah, any, any I think absolutely for me for me it was really I felt really lucky because the, the moment I heard um massive attacks work I just yeah. straight away went that's it, you know I, I didn't know what it was for a while but when I learned you know different styles of music from there and I started I think that's when I started thinking more about production yeah. um how do they actually make some of those amazing textures work um but do you think that that album affected you on 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 a um, personal? Oh, for way? sure. Like I think like, it was the first time that, like as a player, if you imagine, you know, because you always imagine yourself playing with that band, and if you actually had to, you know, step up and play that beat that solid for like five minutes, you know, some of their tracks was just a block of sound in a way. But I thought, you know, you got to be able to emulate that sort of stuff. Yeah, you know, in a studio and a live capacity. Um, and what I liked about that era, so it was, it was the map, you know, is it, um, is it called Red Lines, the album? I'm trying to remember. Yeah. Red Lines, the album. Yeah. That, you know, that's the one that everyone just went bananas over. And then the other album was, um, it, I think it was the first full-length studio album by Cinematic Orchestra. So... Both UK bands, yeah, um, and it was particularly the drumming and the the acoustic quality of the cinematic orchestra recording, yeah. Um, and I think it was at a time where I was just starting to work a bit more on my studio craft, and I was starting to listen to stuff on better speakers, and yeah. uh, a being different tracks in different environments and starting to actually you know, work out why I liked things a certain way. And what I, I think what influenced us was this overall concept of, you know, the mix that you're pulling together. And I guess for me it starts with recording drums. You know, I always think about that as the the genesis of a track, being a drummer. Yeah. And that is how most of my tracks start. Like I generally just sit down and put a click track on yeah. and then play the beat that I'm feeling in that moment, just completely un like hindered by anything yeah 
Uh, and that's generally what makes a basis. So what, what I'm really getting to is that what, what the influence is, is minimalism. Yeah. It's definitely an idea that they, you know, when I look back on that music, the first thing I think about is, A, how much I love it. And emotionally, it was very simple, but the message has really got through. And um, musically, it was really so simple. It was just like they'd always introduce the idea. And then, you know, often in a recorded format, there'd be a guest vocalist on their tracks. Um, same with cinematic orchestra and, and, you know, that whole era, Tricky, um, Portishead. Yeah. I think that if I look back at a time where I was most affected and most drawn and magnetised to an era and a sound, it was definitely that UK. And then mixed with cool shit like, you know, the funky shit coming out of Jamiroquai and Brand New Heavies and Incognito and all that other acid jazz stuff that sat in that same era. Um, I jazz definitely, yeah. Jazz so, yeah. was a great compilation. The Rebirth of Cool. Exactly. All that's Giles Peterson, um, Omar. Uh, I mean, the Incognito album, Talking Loud, was just like to anyone that was doing like, you know, I remember the, the vibe in, you know, universities and colleges. Like that was always those sort of tracks where people, you know, who had the chops and wanted to play that stuff like fucking note for note. It was, um, but very contrasted to that ambient sound, um, which we all know. <laughs> we all know. In this day and age, we can't, we can't talk about where that ambient sound comes from. Tell us why, in, like, in a general retrospective, that, I mean, basically the main question of our podcast has always been, why is it the music between the age of 14 to 20 is so influential? On your life, and there's such a base, and it's such a a genre of music that you are always drawn back to throughout the rest of your adult years. I mean, as as a general question, not just for you, but for everybody. I mean, why do you think those years are such a you know growing time? I think that's. I mean, that's a great question. Firstly, it's a really cool question to ask someone. So. Thanks for asking the question. Um, I feel like, I mean, you know, I, I also remember, you know, a few years prior to being 14, you know, just as you're coming into adolescence, I remember hearing blues for the first time and going, you know, like seeing blues documentaries on ABC, um, you know, like real old school stuff, um, Muddy Waters, John Lee Hooker. Um, and I think that... Um, as you come into those, you know, they really are your formative years. Like as you become a teenager and then you're like, fuck, I'm going to be getting out of school soon. And I really have to work out what I want to do. Like if you're really serious about your music, you, you know what you like, you know, and in some ways that's your challenge because, you know, I've always, I'm mean, not always, I mean, it feels more always now, but there was a time where I was, you know, try, trying to play different styles and different feels. But I think, when I go back to that time, what I really like was tracks that had, you know, it was more of a sample-based reality or more of a, an idea. Like, you know, I guess it's like an acid jazz approach where you've got, you know, the head or the hook and the idea and then you've got a few vocal parts that work around it. Um, so in that time, I feel like um, 
you know, when you look back on it, the other thing that's important to point out is that a lot of it was live, you know. Um, when we were that age, a lot of that stuff was still being played by musos. Yeah. I'm just it, trying to... Exactly. Know. It's like one-track recording, like, you know... Even yeah. like, like, in the studio, it wasn't like, okay, we're just doing the drums right now or we're just doing this right now. It was just they're rec recording it live and taking what they needed out of it. Yeah, that, I mean, that's definitely the impression that I got. I mean, I think, you know, sticking with that whole UK theme, like a lot of the stuff coming out of the UK in the 90s, mid, late 90s, into the 2000s, I was always fascinated by how good it sounded. Mm, yeah. The quality of it. Um, and for me, those years, I guess, 14 and onwards was really about, you know, working out that as a player, I only actually enjoyed playing a certain amount and then I wanted to fiddle with the sound. Mm -hmm. I wanted to start working out how to record things in a certain way. Um, Very Trent Reznor. Yeah, and, those, and then you realise, you know, those techniques take decades to develop, so I'm still, I feel like in the last four or five years in particular, I actually got an opportunity. You know, remember Josh Worm at Paulie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Josh invited us to have a share of the studio for a couple of weeks in Surrey, a couple of days a week in Surrey Hills. And it was like a real leap of faith because um, it was, you know, the culmination of a few years worth of working on my own stuff. And, um, yeah, realising that if you're into actually you know, tuning sound, getting into the deeper frequencies of sound. Um, you know, you have to really go to that extra length to make it happen. Yeah. And I think that's when, when I when I think about that era of music, um, I just love the textures. There's And they're soft. It, you know, the UK sound that I'm recalling, we're talking about is, you know, it's a soft sound. It's like kind of, I don't think about anything being that jerky or edgy by way of the frequencies. Um, and a lot of that's got to do with the fact that they just have absolutely brilliant gear to work on. Yeah, we do suffer a little in that way. Go go a little go a little bit deeper than that though too, right? So when when we talk about this question, there's there is all the musical side of things, and like you say, and what what, what musical journeys they sent you off. Now I'm going to give a little bit of a warning. I am going to talk about Alice in Chains for a second, so. If, People want to tune out because I do this that volume. It's all good. So, I, never, I never do any talk about it, Paulie. <laughs> that's the thanks, bro. So when I, I, when, when I listen, I never when, tune I, out. I talk about some chains all day, brother. Yeah. Thanks, bro. When I when I first listened to the album Dirt, there was all of that. Okay, so I, I fell in love with the Seattle sound, listening to Nirvana. And then I found Alice in Chains and Soundgarden. And Alice in Chains had a profound effect on me, especially that album. Not only the things you're talking about, the sounds. Like my whole bass sound originally, like probably when I was playing with you, came from Mike Starr and the way he, you know, took all the mids out of his bass and it was just bottom end and top end and that was it mm -hmm. and, and took all the mid-range out of it. And that was, especially when you listen to a track like Wood, you know, the bass at the start of that's just, that's, it was everything that I wanted was in a sound was was that fucking song, you know? <laughs> <laughs> that that album changed me on a deeply personal level, not just the sounds, but it affected my personality and the way I viewed the world. Like on a on a more 
probably a more philosophical level. I probably didn't realise at the time, but I definitely felt like a different person after I'd listened to that album. So, like, setting aside the musical side of things where you you love the production and you love the techniques that they're playing and and what they're doing, is is there an album where your internal psyche was changed by listening to that album in terms of your just your general approach in life? Uh, At that particular stage? Yeah. So, but even you know, even later on in your life, like there's always albums that stick out. Nothing shocking always sticks out for me. Dirt always sticks out. Um, oh, Tripod Quest. I guess I think. No. I mean, you know, it's 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 hard not to go past. I mean, for me, you know, um, Bob Marley albums because I think, you know, what he was asking you to think about and what he was challenging. You know, I mean, it's amazing that as an artist that was you know really set up just for a a small movement that was going on around him, you know, in his part of the world when he started writing music. A lot of people, you know, I mean, you know, when you actually just start to question authority, when you start to ask yourself questions about what you, you know, will and won't tolerate, um, what your values are in the world. I think um, those kind of moments with, uh, with Bob Marley albums are about as strong as any, really. Yeah. Because there's happy songs, there's really dark songs, there's songs about murder and loss and sadness and uh, love lost. And and, and almost like, uh, I mean, I'm not a huge aficionado on Bob Marley at all. I wouldn't say I am either, Paul. Definitely not an aficionado. But it seems to me that the, the love that comes across in his music is also very political. In in an unintentional way, if you know, oh, if sure. it, you know, like it's sort of, yeah, I can I can understand that point because it um, it's just it's such a deep. He's he, like, and I don't think I ever appreciated his stuff at all until I got a little bit, got definitely, probably in the last couple of years, you know, hanging out with Born and Z and stuff, and and those guys that are really into to reggae and 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 are they? <laughs> That's classic. Like that, you know and that. And then I go. I have well, it's to had a bit of a resurgence through bands like uh, Sticky Fingers. Well, you know, uh, those guys. Fat Freddy's Drop, mate. You know, like all of that that dub stuff coming out of New Zealand is redonkulous. You know, yeah, like some fucking of, fat ass. I love that shit, that, man. That's and you know, I mean, the New Zealand sound is just. I mean, those dudes can just sing so fucking well. It's ridiculous. <laughs> like everyone just, and they probably all play each other's parts on different instruments. They can probably just swap around. Oh yeah, Holly Smith too. Yeah, she's brilliant, man. I went through a whole period of, I mean, the guys that I really got taken, like my head just got totally taken off was Trinity Roots. Yeah, right. Yeah, I haven't heard uh, of it. was when their, their album, Earth, Land and Sea, um, fuck, was one of the most, I guess it was, it was that time when we were listening to Ben Harper a lot and he definitely had that kind of real deep message going on and a lot of the stuff he was talking about, I mean, you know, Michael Franti as well at the time, it was like that, first awakening of sort of a more uh, social conscious approach to ecology yeah. and land care and that kind of stuff, I guess. It's just um, with Michael Franti though, because I remember seeing um, Disposable Heroes at the big day out. Yeah, know? I remember when they came. I remember when you guys went. I think we were hanging out about that time still. Yeah, and they were, man, here that was like hardcore hip-hop. Yeah. Uh, 
with with that I can't even remember the guy's name, but he was a crazy sort of he, uh, bass player guitarist but he'd had the one instrument with two bass strings on it and four guitar strings and would play the bass lines and the guitar lines at the same time and you know to to to, to hear that out and especially that album you know the television drug of the nation like to go and then to go that was to huge man and i mean it was almost like it crossed us it was like uh, a time when uh you know public enemy were huge i actually yeah. went back and watched a couple of um uh, really cool documentaries about Public Enemy, and um, you know check, some of the stuff. Side note: Check out the the new album Enemy Radio by Public Enemy. It's not called Public Enemy because Flavor Flav legal issues. It's called yeah, Enemy right. Radio. It came out last week. It's yeah. definitely definitely worth a listen. It's always quality from those guys. Oh, Chuck D's on. Chuck D is is is. He's one of the best, man. Oh, He's up there, greatest. I got I went and saw Professor Rage last year or whenever they came out, mainly to go and see him, just to get a chance to see Chuck D on stage. Was that like a sort of art project band vibe? No, no, but it was it's Rage Against the Machine with yeah, Chuck right. D and Be Real from Cypress Hill at the front. Oh, hell, how good's that? Oh, it's fucking amazing. <laughs> so they played all the Rage hits because oh. Zach had given them permission. And then they released an album as well, which was, you know, eh, it was all right. But they did a section in the middle of the gig where um, they did Public Enemy tracks and Cypress Hill tracks. Um, just Live. With, yeah, because they, the, oh, they had DJ Lord from Public Enemy oh, with them dude, as well. The, some of those bass lines, you know, I mean, what I remember about, you know, when we talk about the mixture of, like, creativity and discipline is that, you know, to play those tracks live, like, you just have to play that line yeah. on your instrument, like, fucking perfectly. Yeah, just like deliver that shit note for note. No, well, that's you know, a, as as accurately as you can. You know, not 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 playing too many fills and fucking it up. No, exactly. Well, I'm I'm playing with Born and Z and Mule a little bit at the moment. Well, not at the moment because we can't get together. But and and I'm so I'm not I'm deliberately not writing for them because it's like no no you guys this is your wheelhouse. I want to come yeah. in, give me the line, and I just do that because it's a hip hop thing. You know, yeah. Like, I don't want to come in and make it my thing because it's then it's rocking. You know, like Otherwise, you'd have to start asking for uh, writing points, and then it just gets awkward. Well, not only that, but they're they're really not into what I write either. So it's it's much easier. <laughs> of course they're not. Do you know? But it is it is that discipline too when you're playing hip hop of like and born of especially is always simplify, man. Simplify, simplify what you're doing. Yeah. Play that line. Play that one line. You know, yeah. so we can we can cover the rhythm over the top. We don't need to, that rhythm from anyone else. So, yeah, oh, it's good. It's good. Anyone else, bro? Anyway, like we talked, we got into Bob Marley, but like at Jamiroquai, you touched on before, um, and I was thinking about this. I was yeah, I mean, I've been to, the, the whole podcast. I've been thinking about the fact that you saw Jamiroquai play the Metro Theatre. I mean, it was like hands down the coolest gig that I've ever seen because I mean, a lot of us couldn't even pronounce the band name when we went in. No, you know, yeah. like it was. Did Buddha go with you? No, I went with a friend called Nathan Safford, who's he was actually kind of like a, a, a like a Giles Peterson lover. So he he listened to all. He's from an English background, but his parent, you know, he'd been living out. He was born out here, but he's, you know, he's from quite a British heritage. Yeah. So he was quite in tune with like, you know, Radio One and all the stuff that was coming out. Um and he just got on to this Jamiroquai stuff and he was like, dude, you gotta come and see this gig. And I just had, you know, I'd literally 
hadn't even had, you know, I mean, back then you couldn't just look someone up on the internet. No, no. Um, so, you know, I literally imagine never hearing that album Emergency on Planet Earth yeah. and then walking into the gig and going, and it was, you know, it was um, Jay at his best. He was just still fresh. His voice was probably as good as it had, had ever been. Yeah. Um, because I think, you know, the toll of touring after that on the band starts, you know, it's a, it's a big deal. Like, um, you yeah, know, they, they grinded themselves into the ground from touring and they, they didn't fade to black, but they definitely faded after, you know, a good stint. And I'll definitely put that down to, you know, over touring. Well, I mean, you can't really over tour, but I mean, just. Uh, is it better to burn out than fade away? I mean, they never really faded away, but I feel in the latter years of Jamiroquai, it just it became mechanics. Yeah, well, it was all all too similar, you know. By the by, the end. Well, I mean, I know they're still he's still around, right? The 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 um, the singer. Still well, the thing there, sort of, you know. I mean, for to exercise. I mean, you know, there's two ways to look at it. One of them is, you know, creatively, they definitely contributed a huge component. Um, to, I mean, they were really the biggest commercial band to come out of the acid jazz era in the UK. I mean, that was, it was a combination of like 20 years worth of stuff. And they just happened to have the right combination to take a little bit of the house kind of vibe. So they could probably, you know, start doing a lot of dance festivals. Um, that yeah. floor, the floor thing just works, you know, it's at 120 BPM. And, you know, you got to give it to this. This the, the real ingredients come down to the drummer. Yeah. Um, and Sam Dixon wasn't bad when he was with him either. Sam Dixon, I mean, Stu Zender, and um, you know, the brother man on drums. Um, you know, is definitely one of the like when you see them play together, it's just like this relentless energy. Um, so speaking and, of speaking of Sam Dixon, quickly, like I, I spoke to we spoke to Alain about this. And I know I blew some smoke up your ass before saying it was such a joy to play with you. But I do was thinking about today, the um, the worst gig that you and I ever played together uh, was on Glee Point Road. And we did an outdoor, outside Drew Ross's parents' record shop. And Dig was the band on after us. Directions in Groove. Yeah, and we were so shit. We were so shit, and they got on, and they fucking blew us out of the water like there was no tomorrow. I think, I think on my left, Paul. I don't really remember that. Don't remember. I was like, man, it was a weird. It was a weird gig. It must have been you because it was Alan, Justin, maybe Toll played. Yeah, man. I don't think I was there. I don't remember one on Glee Point Road. I remember when we had the residency at the at Kinsella's. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that shit went better than. That. <laughs> That was it must have been tough, but I see. I don't think I did. I don't remember the Glee Point Road gig. Oh, dude, it was so. You got out at the right time, man. By the sound of it. Yeah, yeah, it was just. It was, it was just bad. before Dig blew up as well, so it was like, uh, it was such an embarrassment, mate. It's such an embarrassment. Yeah. Um, what can I say? It's happened to all of us. I um, I've I've definitely got. Like my story in that in that category is like I played this gig with a great sax player and I've never been a great jazz player or much of a good jazz player to say it. Like I've really just focused on, you know, playing groove. That's what I do well. And um, 
at the end of the gig, Dave was just like that. It was like this most shittest fucking drumming ever, dude. Like that's <laughs> like he didn't say those exact words. Yeah. But that's all I heard. That's exactly how it was just whatever his face was saying mixed with yeah. his his body language. Yeah, and I was like and I I, I I honestly don't think I've played another jazz gig since then. Yeah. Wow. I just parked it hundred percent, just pulled it over, threw the keys in the river. Yeah. But in saying that, lately I've been thinking about, um, you know, I think when you, you know, play an instrument, you know, I definitely love challenging myself on the drums. It's all about the challenge of, you know, what you can do and how you can get better. And I think what's interesting is um, for a lot of us that have been playing heaps of gigs in the last few years that now don't have so many gigs, it's an opportunity to really develop your skills. Yeah. Um, and I'm looking forward to a time in the next couple of months where, um, you know, I'm in a place where I can actually set up the studio again so the mics are on the drums the whole time and you don't have to pack them down. Yeah. Um, and that's when stuff starts to become a lot more fluid. Yeah. Um, your creativity is, you know, you just hit record and you're off and away. Um, well, that, 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 is the, that is the burden of being a drummer, isn't it? In that, in that, you know, like I mean, when you do recording and people are like, okay, we got we got six hours recording, it's like, okay, just remember that three hours of that will be getting the drums right before we put in. Yeah, and the, exactly the beauty of having your own rig is like, you know, the studios I've had over the last, you know, I don't know, eight to ten years, I guess, they've really been focused on drum sound so that you can come yeah. in, and most of the good sessions I've done is has been providing tracks for people where, you know, they might replace a couple of things on the drum kit, but it's actually just them coming in to record that sound. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's always all, when you come to recording, as far as I understand from documentaries, especially one that comes to mind straight away is Sound City, it's all about the drums. Yeah. And, like, for example, Sound City was an absolute fucking shit tip. No one wanted to play there, but that room that they recorded in, you know, albums like Rage Against the Machine, uh, Tool, uh, oh, the list goes on and on and on, but it was all about the drums. Yeah. And that room just had that one spot that had the drums. Yeah. Yeah. That's all you need. Well, Danny Carey's a bit of a freak for that too, you know, like if there, what, the, there was one of the, it might, might have been 10,000 days where he had to have a percentage of helium in the room when he was playing because it gave the top end of the drums a particular sound. Wow. So they'd mix up the oxygen and helium levels in the room to get that, get this, like, I mean, that's, that's, that's going deep, man. <laughs> that's going deep. Get the sound. Hey, I'm, I'm really hoping our Ben right here is skinning up right now. Is that what you're doing, Ben, on the side there? <laughs> and it's all good because, like, we're all adults here. And yeah. our audience are all adults and – None of our parents would ever listen to this. So, Robbie, you're in a safe place. I did. Um, I'm looking at your website here, mate. The Honey and Stone one, and it, that is Joel on that web on the didgeridoo, eh? Which one, Joel? Joel Sinclair. Which side is that? I just pulled up Honey and Stone, and there's a. I don't know if it is him, but it definitely looks like him. I haven't got any shots of Didge on that site, though. It would be Joel playing the Didge, though. You see that? 
Oh, no, that's a guy called Stu. Man, that looks so much like Joel. It's ridiculous. The ponytail, the keyboard, massive beard. Did he clone you the uh, final post? Hey? I was asking, Ben, was he cloning people? You're cloning people up on the North Coast. <laughs> Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. We're getting there. We, we should put Ben and Gally together. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Gally's a he's, a he's a hell of a music singer. Oh, he's, uh, he's got phenomenal. Yeah, you want to have a look at his sites, it's uh, gally.com.au. Uh, Paul will send you the link, but uh, uh, amazing, amazing singer-songwriter, but uh, fucking hell, his Gallioke gigs that he does at the covers, mate, everyone gets involved. Just, just, just a man and a guitar and He's Irish, mate, so he can play anything, you know? Yeah, the Irish crew got amazing energy. Yeah. Yeah, but it, on his website, there's a great link to one of his tracks on YouTube, which is just like I'd, I'd never heard him until we did the podcast with him a couple of weeks ago. Jesus. Guy his originals. Or originals, and then, yeah, like Robbo says, he does his covers gigs and stuff as well, you know, to yeah. support. And, you know, his, his album, Aquarian River, it's uh, it's it's definitely one of the ones that have been missed uh, by the generation over the last ten years. To have a, have a look at the the song that's on the YouTube video. It's fucking amazing. Is it long way you What is it? Uh, it is. Hang on, I've got it here. Uh, yeah, long may your days be gold. Gone. Long may your days be gold. Long may your days be gold. That's I shot the original. I shot the original uh, video for that uh, up in the mountains in a chalet that I was uh, running at the time, and we had no place in being there. There was like a weekend where it was free, and we pulled in like about a dozen musicians on this beautiful sunny day, and took over this multi-million-dollar chalet and recorded an entire day and shot two film clips for two of his different songs on that day, which had. Not, not on his website. Unfortunately, Unfortunately. You, I'm sure you saw all the right because they, they were recorded live, and he wasn't happy with the live versions of it, which yeah. is like doesn't come down to me. I mean, they were shot fucking amazingly, and I said, "Well, you can use all the footage and da da da." And anyway, he, he didn't go. It was fucking one of the best shoots I've ever done. What are you drinking? Are you drinking wine like me? Paul's fucking drinking tea. <laughs> oh, He's one. Yeah, this comes from the monk, the monk stock. Yeah, we're getting some weight on soon, bro. It's all good. <laughs> so, but, uh, okay, so let's, uh, all right, let's, let's just do okay, so I've got, got a question for Ben. Okay, so I've got a two part question for you. Uh, what was your all time best gig you've ever been to? Uh, and followed by what was the all-time best gig you played? Um, best gig I've been to? It's, it's actually it's pretty it's pretty easy. Um, so I, <laughs> after seeing Jamiroquai at the at the Metro, I saw them one other time, like two or three years later. And by then they'll play. I think they played. We saw them at the Brisbane Entertainment Centre, 
And it was back in the day when, like, you know, the Sydney Entertainment Centre was still pumping. You know, it was a big deal to see a band at that kind of venue. And I was fascinated to see how they'd take that step from, you know, seeing it at the Metro in front of, like, a 1,000 people or something. And then in front of whatever it was, like, five, six, seven, eight thousand 8,000 people, um, it was just clean. It was just... It was like that first time that I realised, you know, how, how beautiful it is to be a band that has the time to rehearse yeah. and really play the music without having to think about it. You know, it's just coming out of you. You know what's coming next. Everything's moving in the right direction the whole time. And um, I think that's what it's about in the end is like, you know, seeing a gig where you want to be one of those players. Um, the other gig that I saw that is up there with that is... I don't know if you're there, Paulie, but they used to have um, the vibes on the summer's day at the back of the pavilion. Yeah. And there was, I think it was the first time I saw Ben Harper there. And, yeah. again, it was like, you know, we'd heard his stuff and everyone was a huge fan. But, you know, to see him live was definitely like, you know. Well, this this will show the contrast of, contrast of our backgrounds. I'm pretty sure that that summer – we played down there at the first annual Bondi Funk Festival. Yeah, I remember that. We were being interviewed after it by whatever, it wasn't MTV, but whatever the Australian version of it was. And you said that gig, yeah, that, that was the gig for you. That was the one for summer. And my gig for summer was Pennywise at, at, at the Vans Fest in Manly. You know, which, <laughs> that would have been sick. So that really shows the two different, directions you and I were both coming from and you know when we, when we were playing so yeah but I was thinking about what the the uniting force is in there and it's like the the bridge of bass players I was thinking you know we used to listen to Les Claypool yeah back then as well oh and Primus and Tool and then you know and then it had come into like the sort of you know the rage kind of like it started to funk out a little bit and then it went into the Chili Peppers and it was like but all of what I think about across that whole era is the bass sounds and the yeah. bass players and that. Um, uh, Les Claypool, uh, Robert Trulio, um, fuck Justin Chancellor, like all those guys. Living Colour, I remember they were huge. Like they had a massive sound for that era, Soundgarden. Yeah. Um, I mean, when I think about that stuff, maybe it's because I'm a rhythm section player, but I think about all the great bass players. Well, Caius as well. That was another one. Yeah. They were people that, that really crossed heavy, heavy music with funk grooves and they yeah. made it dirty stoner rock. But if you break it down, it's a funk track. You could put a clean guitar over it, dude, and it would not be out of place, you know? Yeah. You know? So I think I still, I think I still. Well, you know, and I, like, you know who else I always have to mention as someone that isn't afraid of like big guitar business, but it's still, you know, like for me, like a solid R&B artist, which is Michelle, the bass player. Yeah. Michelle and Diggiacello, because you listen to her stuff. Oh, you see her live as well. Like, um, and, and actually, she, when I when I saw, crazy. you know, in that era, you know, guitar solos were still the thing. And I remember seeing Portishead in particular at the Horton Pavilion, and the guitar solos were so full on. It was like going to see the best rock guitarist. You know, I was like, you know, you'd only kind of thought this dude was just playing chords and all of that shit that you hear on the album. And then suddenly, when it came to his solos, um, you know, it was like that whole era was still very much marked by crunching massive guitar. 
Yeah, yeah, and uh, and I the, the, I still love that mesh of like I, I do a lot of it. Especially I'm going through a bit of a stage at the moment where I'm doing a lot of that four on the floor dance, wolf kick drum, yeah, busy snare over the top with a tight bass line with an enormous guitar sound over the top. Yeah, I like that. That I love that shit. That that's get that gets me up and gets me going. Well, I mean, the thing that I remember, you know, the other the other gig that I remember, you know, I mean, it's hard to say which one is is the one, but I remember when I saw Funkadelic. Yeah, I think I saw them at the Enmore first. Yeah, and I saw them at Blues Fest. I think a couple of years later. Yeah, and again, it was this thing where there's always this connection to the rock. And they got to this section where I think the guy solo, the guitarist soloed for about seven minutes, and it was so loud, it was like almost unbearable. Yeah. By the end of it, and this was a funk gig, you know. Yeah. And it's like those guys get it. They get they, you know, they've they've, you know, they're from the states. They've been around great rock bands. They know that it's it's part of the show, you know. Yeah. And um, well, the the other one with that is is Ice T and Body Count, right? Yeah. Like they released an album two weeks ago, metal, so metal, so yeah, metal. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Like it's the stuff they were doing in the nineties was very rock. Yeah. Who now is like metal, and it's yeah. Ice T. I mean, it's Ice T. It's one of the kings of hip hop, mate. Yeah. Like, and his whole thing was, he would go to Europe and play hip hop, and the kids would mosh to it, and he was like, "Well, there's got to be something in the hip hop that's still rock." You know, and 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 they seem to find like because they do on the new album they do a version of Colors, um, and they also do a version of Ace of Spades, Motorhead. Yeah, right. So they really, but it sounds like Body Count. You know what I yeah. mean? Like it's it's yeah, it's like yeah, and it, he seemed to tap into that that understanding of yeah, we're rapping and it's a DJ and this, but it's still rebellious. It's still the attitude. It's still you know the the guitars and it's 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 all of those things that that, that are still there in hip hop and in rock music and in metal. And, well, man, and, and look in this in this day and age, like you know, you know, with all the stuff that's going on at the moment, I mean, it's almost like you have to listen to a bit of you know. I've been listening to a lot of Radio National, yeah. and um, you know, with a lot of that music, you know, uh, essentially a lot of it was you know motivating oneself to question your circumstances, question you know, what sort of forces are at play sometimes that, you know, may not be in the best interest of, you know, the wider public or certain groups of the community. And, um, you know, a lot of that music in that era was about uh, the voice of minorities, really. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know, but look, maybe people that are younger than me will correct me, right? But it felt like to me when, when we were younger that what you listened to really defined you more as a person. Whereas I don't think that is still relevant. I don't think looking at, at my kids in particular, I mean, my kids are, you know, 21 and 19, that that, like, we really defined ourselves by what we listened to. You know, what, what you listened to defined what you wore, defined who your friends were, and all of those. So I think it was a much bigger part of our existence then, whereas the, there's so much more information around for the kids that today that, it's not as not as much of a bigger driver, you know. What, what do you think of what do you think of that? Something like that. You think you defined yourself more back then? Like if you look back at sixteen year old Ben Carse, 
you know, and, and you're meeting someone for the first time. I mean, w- Robbo and I, we became friends listening to Jane's Addiction. That was the thing that, like, we came from the subgroups that we were in were completely separate. You know, Robbo was a surfer. I had nothing to do with surfers. I was a skater and, you know, a little punk rat dude. But yeah. we had Jane's Addiction. Well, that was that was the common the common denominator. And we seemed to define ourselves by what we listened to. Whereas now it doesn't seem to matter so much. It doesn't seem to have that that sort of same sort of boundary. Yeah, there's goths and there's metalheads and there's, you know, people that don't cross over. But generally speaking, people seem to have a wider listening field, if you will, you know? Well, I think the media is different. You know, yeah. I mean, when you talk, when you were asking that question or just posing those ideas, you know, the thing I thought about was that the music we were listening to was a big form of our media. True. You know, like we didn't have smartphones, we didn't have iPads. Um, a lot of us, you know, in the era that we're talking about, you know, we, we didn't even have computers at home. No. And I think it's important to remember that in that environment, um, whatever we were listening to musically was like a form of, well, in most circumstances that we're talking about on your podcast, I would venture to guess to say subversive uh, analysis yeah. <laughs> of the situation. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, um, you know, I, I definitely think that's, you know, when I, I guess I think about Rafi and when he's, you know, scrolling through stuff that, you know, sometimes I go, fuck, man, you know, that's just not for a seven-year-old. Like, you know, maybe a nine-year-old friend's played it and I'm like, you know, listen to it. And it's actually like pretty heavy stuff. Um, and I think in – I do think, honestly, like we were lucky in a way that the stuff we listened to challenged what we were thinking about, but it wasn't – I think that there was a lot less head fucking going on. Yeah. You know, and 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 the reason I say that is because I noticed the other day, like when Raf had spent a little bit too much time, like he wanted to play a game that all of his mates were playing. So we were like, you know, we'll let you play a little bit of it. Um, and it kind of just, you know, the next day I could tell he was pretty fried from playing it too much. Yeah. Um, and it, it ties in with what you're saying because it's, it's like a time where, you know, in a positive sense, what I did is show him how to use Spotify yeah. and I showed him, you know, he's able to spell a little bit now. So I, sh- I showed him how to look up his own tracks yeah. and I let him listen to stuff that's a little bit borderline, you know, too old for him, but, you know, maybe like three or four times. Yeah. And then I go, that's it. Like, you know, you can't hide people from the truth or you can't hide people from bad language or any of this kind of, it's, it's small change in the end. Um, but I think, you know, it's a good question that you ask in terms of, you know, how, how we get influenced by things. Because back then, um, I mean, what do we have? We have music, we have video clips on telly, and we just had telly, right? We just had normal television. We, we had Triple J before they were shit, so. Yeah. But, you know, it's like none of us had, like, devices in our rooms. No. Nah. And none of us had computers when no, we were teenagers. Go to someone's place and they had a TV in their room and that'd be like, fuck, dude. Oh, that'd be huge, bro. Or more than one TV in the house. Yeah, fully, fully. Mm. So just to, just to let's, let's wrap things up a little bit. Yeah. Uh, you, the stuff you're doing, you're looking at releasing? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, I'm pretty much made my mind to just be a studio release. Yeah. Because all of the tracks are... 
Uh, I mean, Lou, I'll send you guys the rushes because they're ready. Um, yeah. But they're ba- they're really a, a map of the last ten years of like <clears throat> a lot of the um, basis for the textures is about working with bass players that obviously can play the bass line but can also lay a number of other lines up the neck of the bass. So like I've got a friend who's brilliant left-handed bass player, he's got a six-string Federa. And <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. It's a $23,000 bass. I don't know what it is now, but he's also got a four-string Emperor, you know, so that's, is the, yeah. that's the Emperor and he's got a Monarch. He's got a four-string Monarch. Um, you know, he's a bass nut kind of guy, but so the whole premise of the album is once I heard him playing chords up the neck of the Emperor, um, I started dropping a lot of guitar parts out yeah, and a lot of keyboard parts out and, and a lot of the tracks have, it's hard to hear it in some ways, but a lot of them will have three and four different bass parts. Yeah. So a lot of it is a sort of this sonic study into like, um, you know, a very real drum sound, but in some cases it's quite hard to hear the way. I mean, everything's chopped up organically. Yeah. They're all sounds that I've created. Um, some of the tracks are played straight through, um, but um, it's it's a lot about the bass and drums and featuring melodic components on the bass that constitute the track. Yeah. So if that's what I'm happy with, you know, it's it's sort of like a, a, a exercise in faith that, you know, if it's a groove that I'm happy listening to, I just got to trust there'll be enough people out there that also feel the same way. Yeah. So a lot, some of it is very simple is what I'm saying. A lot of it's just bass, drums, keys. Yeah. Just groove, bass work. Um, but then there's some real change-up tracks. So, yeah, it's a, um, it's really about, the you know, the players that I've loved working with. Yeah, cool. Uh, and I think I've got each of them on a track, which is really special. That's yeah, nice. That's yeah. Cool. Yeah, I'd love love to hear some of that, brother. For sure. For Maybe sure. Next, next work, you'll be first first cab off the rank. Paulie, I'll send you. Oh, done. Well, man, I didn't play for ten years. I didn't pick up a bass for ten years. I did a whole other stuff. I mean, the thing that's freaky about technology these days is that is that you could record a bass line into your phone. Yeah. Send it to me, and I could do something creative with it. You know. Exactly. Like, it's like the quality matters, but in another sense, it doesn't matter anymore. It's kind of like it's a piss off. And yeah. it's it's also wonderfully liberating. Yeah, it's it's, so it's, it's just the position yeah. of technology, and you know you you miss. Okay, we all want to record on two inch tape, but you know the the reality is is that we don't have to. <laughs> so. Well, it's fine. I mean, it's interesting, hey, because it's actually gone back to being very simplistic. Like you know, people listening to stuff through computers and phones and whatnot without decent you know stereo home systems, which most people used to have. Yeah means that we're actually listening to music like when it first started yeah. in a very basic filtered mono kind of like compressed and that's not a bad thing but it's it's quite ironic that you know a lot of the way people listen to music now is you know similar to an old scratchy gramophone yeah <laughs> by way of quality that's yeah it's 100 true yeah. Yeah. so if if people want to um book stuff Long I haven't got anything up yet, but it'll be. It's coming out. Um, the production name's Cash K E S H. Yep. And what about with with Honey and Stone? If people want to make bookings, they just go through your website and contact. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And we're all over Australia, so um, yeah. we've got great bands placed up and down the coast. Cool. So yeah. Um, we'll give you yeah, have a last word, Ben, for us. Thanks for having us. It's been an 
Yeah, it's been a pleasure, guys. Um, it's great Thanks to see the work good. that you're doing. And um, I think particularly now more than ever, it's, you know, to be con connecting like this is um, it's good for everyone. So thanks. No, 100%, man. really appreciate having you yeah. on and having your time, you know, like, and it's been, I've been looking forward to doing this one. So thanks again, bro. Appreciate yeah. it. Thanks for having us on, fellas. Guys, thanks so much for listening. That was another great episode. Great episode. Awesome. Uh, please don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Check out our Instagram, at Zoyola Podcast, upcoming guests, little highlights, little bits of video and stuff. Um, if you want to drop us a line, please do. Please do. Send us an email, zoyolapodcast at yahoo.com. Pick us up on some mistakes. Uh, remember, though, Zoyola is spelt with an X, not a Z. Generation X. Generation X. Um, but, yeah, look, we're open to all feedback. Um, if you give us a follow on Instagram, we'll give you automatic follow back. Just because that's the lovely guys that we are. So lovely. So lovely. Very happy. Um, look, if you want to be a guest, you know of someone that wants to be a guest, you like what we're doing, you just want to say g'day, just drop us a line. We'll, we'll read everything, try and get back to you if we can, and uh, hopefully give you a shout out if possible. Have a good night, guys.